William John, Cardinal Conway, now laid to rest in Armagh, was born in 1913 into a family of nine children at 108 Dover Street in the Falls Road area of Belfast. Seamus Kelly went to school with him to the Christian Brothers. There were about 20 of us in that particular matriculation class. The hard-boiled sophisticates, many of whom later went far, as they say, played cards in the back seats. Being junior, I sat further forward and closer to the eye of authority in the near neighbourhood of two classmates who were namesakes but weren't related. One of them was Thomas Anthony Conway, and if he'd been in an American high school, he'd probably have been voted the one most likely to succeed in capital letters. Tom Conway was a brilliant all-rounder, but economic pressure forced him out of school and onto the emigrant ship before he matriculated. He went to New York, and in Manhattan he started his career as a bootlegger's runner, went on to Wall Street from there, and finished his business life as a big tycoon with a master's degree from Scott Fitzgerald's College, Princeton. The other Conway we called Willie or Bill... He had a high academic rating, and unlike myself, he was a good, solid worker. I was lazy and erratic, interested only in the things I liked, but sometimes fairly good at them because I liked them. So the two Conways, myself and a man who is now a top medical specialist in the North, were rated the four bright boys of the class, sometimes one of us on top, sometimes another. By the way, it's a tribute to Bill Conway in the context of the crowd he was with and the fact that he was known as a slogger, that he was well liked by his classmates. The same applied later on in Queens, where he did honours English with the barrier of a potential Roman collar between him and his fellow students. We saw less of each other at this period than we did at school, but in the years after we sometimes bumped into each other, the Maynooth professor and the journalist. Then... In 1958, Dr. Conway of Maynooth was made Auxiliary Bishop to Cardinal Dalton, with the title of Bishop of Navy. We had been schoolmates, so I wrote him a friendly note of congratulation. It finished a bit facetiously with the line, You'll be glad you've got to a place now where I can't pass you out. Some weeks later, I got a formal acknowledgement from the new bishop. It was very formal, on an engraved card, you know the sort of thing. The Bishop of Neve thanks you for your kind message. And as I read it, I was wondering if the Episcopal elevation had made my old classmate a bit pompous. But then, down at the bottom, I came across a line in his own script. It said, Thanks a lot. You're darn right. Yours, Bill. Paddy Scott knew him well as a student. I remember him then as a tall, slim, shy young man, serious-minded and studious. But there was nothing bookish about him. His natural shyness kept him from making friends easily at first. But once contact made closer acquaintance, there was revealed a warm-hearted man with a keen mind who even then chose his words carefully. He had a terse, penetrating style of speech, and in writing too, and this won him an honours degree in English. The learned and cultured, and cultured uh, uh, theologian uh, and philosopher Monsignor Arthur Ryan, to whom we owe all a great deal, 
had an influence in the development of his keen philosophical brain. He was proud of Belfast, and at that time we were all proud of Belfast, and he was proud of his native parish, St Peter's, on the Falls Road. And I remember his first emotional words to the cheering crowds that welcomed his triumphal entry as the youngest cardinal in the Sacred College after paying tribute to his parents, he said, with great emotion, Thank you for welcoming me home. It was an emotional time. If he didn't play games, he took an interest in sport, especially the Gaelic Athletic Association and Belfast Celtic Football Club when it was in operation. He always gave the impression of being studious, methodical, exact, but never ostentatious. He was a kind man, caring for the poor and the oppressed. And I believe that his practical knowledge of the sufferings of the workless and the hungry and the hungry people in the hungry thirties in Belfast, in those what we call harsh and cruel days, had an influence on his deep concern for the underprivileged. And this was reinforced when he saw the terrible tragedy of Bangladesh. And these combined increased his determination to do something. And that's something he did by the establishment of Trokhara. After Queen's University, he went to Maynooth, where he was ordained, and where, after further studies in Rome, he was, in 1942, appointed Professor of Moral Theology and later of Canon Law, remaining there till the late 50s. Dr. Enda MacDonough. In that time, he displayed considerable intellectual vigour in his thought and great clarity and precision in his presentation. I was a student of his at the time in moral theology. His theology was the theology of the time, cast basically in a legal form. And this, I felt, was sympathetic to the man because while he was a theologian as well as a lawyer, I felt his cast of mind was predominantly that of a lawyer. The clarity and the precision of the thought, the marshalling of facts and arguments were very much that of the advocate, not that he was unfair in argument, but that he was interested in what could be expressed in legal form and more precise formula. After he became a bishop, of course, his pastoral awareness must have influenced and broadened this approach, and there was no doubt that he was deeply under the influence of Vatican II. And he attempted, in his fashion, with all his energy and intellectual power, to bring back to Ireland, at a pace which he judged correct, the insights of Vatican II. However, his pace may not have been everybody's pace, and his understanding of the insights still reflected the mind of the lawyer. Yet there is no doubt that he managed in a very turbulent time to maintain a certain intellectual equilibrium in the Irish Church. That intellectual equilibrium was due, I think, to his sense of proportion, to his value for theology and theologians, even though he disagreed with them. In 1958, he was made Auxiliary Bishop to the late Cardinal Dalton, 
whom he succeeded in the primatial see of Armagh in 1963. Archbishop Morris of Cashel worked closely with him. Uh, last time I spoke to him on the telephone, that was just uh, about a month ago, he thanked me for some notes that I had sent to him about changes in bishops' meetings and so on over the past 25 years. And he remarked, and there was a little bit of pathos about it in retrospect, about the number of bishops' meetings that he had presided over. And he presided over a great deal, and it'll be, for us who knew him so well at that in that situation, it'll be one of our memories. Now, he, of course, brought to this work, same as he brought to everything else, all the wonderful talents and so on that he had. Uh, but one point I think will remain with me, and that is that as well as the talent, uh, say, capacity for work and the meticulous outlook, I think there was one extra thing there which uh, ties in very well with the, the church man in him. And that is that it was his service to the, the bishops and to the church in Ireland. Uh, it ties in with the idea of uh, co-responsibility among bishops and collegiality. And uh, it's something, I think, that would, could be connected up with his availability. Uh, he was a servant of the community and he was available to it at all times, but also to the limits of his capacity. And he was unsparing towards himself in, in uh, giving that service. Bishop Daly of Derry can add to this. Cardinal Conway was a northerner, a northerner through and through. And he was born and he grew up on the Falls Road in Belfast. He shared all the feelings, the insights, the sensitivities that we all have as Northern Catholics. However, he went beyond the narrowness that sometimes hedges us in. He reached out to the Protestant community in an exemplary manner, and his relationship, especially with the heads of the churches, was closer than that of any of his predecessors. He gave us all example and leadership. He was a man who demanded justice for his people. He was an outspoken opponent always of discrimination in any form. And it's conveniently forgotten by some that it was primarily his firm, clear, unequivocal statement of the facts that brought public credibility to the torture of prisoners after internment day in August 71. He was a man who opposed violence in all its forms from any source. And the agony of the people of the North dominated his concern. He pleaded and pleaded again and again with those who inflicted violence or injustice on their fellow men. And he repeatedly pointed out the incompatibility of violence or injustice with Christian living. And that his appeals went unheard and that the suffering went on here in his own community were causes of great sorrow to him, great anguish. And even now after his death, I wonder is it too much to hope that those calls might be listened to and acted upon. Dr Eric Gallagher is a prominent leader of the Methodist community. I had the opportunity of meeting the Cardinal on quite a number of occasions, both formally and informally. I think the memory that I'll always take away with me was, is that of his humanity. 
He was essentially a very human person, very, very friendly, and at the same time very humble. He delighted in good conversation. He liked to hear a good story, and he liked to tell a good story. A good deal of reference has been made to his pipe. I think sometimes he lit more matches and used more matches than he used tobacco. But he was essentially a good conversationalist, a most human person in every possible way. The um, violence of these last years ate very deeply into his feelings and into his thinking. He, he lived with this. And it was here I saw another of his characteristics, really. It was his memory, a most fantastic memory. He could remember the names of people who were killed, the, the town land they came from, the incidents in which various things had happened on both sides of the divide. He had that kind of phenomenal memory, and he also pitchforked himself right into the feeling of, of people. He, he could feel the, the sufferings they had gone through, and, uh, and he felt deeply for families. Then I want to speak about his uh, church relationships, I had the opportunity of being one of the early people from the Protestant side who met him, and it was a very interesting operation, you know. He was weighing us up, and I suppose we were trying to weigh him up. And uh, he was very anxious to know how the Protestant churches worked, and he took great delight in kind of trying to probe and feel out how we felt about things. I always had the impression he genuinely wanted to make improvements in our relationships, and he went a very, very long way. Perhaps people today say we should have done more. But when I look back at the situation as it was when he came into his position and as it is today, I realise that a tremendous change has taken place. We owe him a very great deal. People say he was a traditionalist, he was a, a gradualist, and I suppose this is true. But nonetheless, he was graduating in the, in the direction that he wanted to go, in a direction that would do this country a great deal of good. I'd have liked to have seen uh, more progress, and I know he would have liked to have seen more progress, but I thank God for what has been achieved. Father Jim Lennon. As a priest of the diocese, uh, the first thing I would want to say about the Cardinal was that he was a very fair man. To my knowledge, he never did uh, an unfair thing to any priest in the diocese. And he was always so available and so accessible to them. He always listened. And I think this is a great quality in a bishop. Then one thinks of his initiatives, the, the new things he did, the part he played, for instance, in setting up the Catechetical and Pastoral Institute in Mount Oliver and his continued interest in it. He was, to a great extent, responsible for getting the whole new catechetical program off the ground. That without his interest and without his support, that program might never have started. I worked uh, fairly closely with him. I always found him uh, a completely human man, um, a great sense of humour. In fact, uh, talking about his availability and accessibility to priests, uh, he was available and accessible to everyone. Paddy Scott earlier mentioned how the Cardinal's concern led to the founding of Trokere. Brian McEwen fills in the story. 
My first involvement with the Cardinal in connection with third world problems was back in 1968. At that time, I was working at the international level in an organisation called SIDSI, which was a coordinating body of all the Catholic development agencies. And they had come to Ireland to speak to the Cardinal about the possibilities of the Irish Church setting up a development agency. In fact, I had come over to try and convince the Cardinal of the importance of this. What, in fact, I did find was that the Cardinal was fully convinced of the importance of it. And in turn, he had said to me that his problem was in trying to convince all the other bishops of it. Well, it took him approximately two years to achieve this. And uh, in 1970, the bishops launched an appeal for Bangladesh. This was a one-off appeal. And one of the amazing things about this appeal was that it raised over £200,000 in uh, a one-day collection. That, in a sense, was the start of Trokra. Uh, that appeal for Bangladesh was on the initiative and the instigation of the Cardinal himself. Trokra was officially set up in 1972 uh, by a joint pastoral letter on development and the Cardinal was the chairman of the Board of Trustees. The Cardinal was intensely interested in Trokra and in the whole third world problem. I think this stemmed from his own personal commitment to people and to the fact that he had been in the third world countries on several occasions. Once or twice he, he mentioned to me particularly when he would hear that uh, we had so many problems at home, we should look after our own problems, the charity begins at home. The Cardinal said to me a few times, he said that, really, when one is out there and sees the extent and the level of poverty, one would never uh, say such things as charity begins at home. I think that the Cardinal took great pride, great personal pride and encouragement at the level of support which Trokra received right from the start, both from the other bishops and from the, the people. Cardinal Conway did not believe that charity should stay at home, but this did not, as we know, limit his concern for his own people. Jerry Fitt. Well, I had met Cardinal Conway on a number of occasions since the outbreak of the present troubles in Northern Ireland, and uh, usually we had deputations from the SDLP to talk to him, to discuss with him the problem particularly as it was affecting my constituency in West Belfast, where Cardinal Conway was born and reared. I found Cardinal Conway very easy to talk to, very approachable, and he was certainly a man who was deeply concerned about what was happening in the area in which he lived, the Falls Road, Dover Street, in which he was born, and Dover Street, which came into prominence again on the 14th and 15th of August 1969. These were, this was an area which was very close to the Cardinal's heart. And much of what he did at this time, he did by stealth. Yes, I found Cardinal Conway, and I found this to be rather refreshing. Unlike most politicians, he didn't want to go on television and to see his name in the paper for every act which he did. And I do know that behind the scenes... He was meeting various groups of people, and not all Catholic people, to try to influence them to do whatever was possible to end the violence in Northern Ireland. He didn't get publicity for this, but I know that he was working tirelessly behind the scenes to try to erase the violence from the streets on, in which he was born. From the other end of the political spectrum, Lord Hailsham. I first met the Cardinal, I think, in 1969, 
when I was sent over to Northern Ireland uh, by Mr. Heath to report to him and to the Conservative Conference about what was then the beginning of the sequence of events that we now know only too well. And in the course of my visit there, um, I asked the Cardinal to receive me, um, explaining to him exactly the nature of my mission. Uh, he became quite a friend of mine. We never saw each other very often. I met him occasionally on official occasions. But uh, we corresponded quite uh, considerably. And um, I think we could, he would have um, liked me to say that we were friends. Um, he um, was able to help me on more occasions than one in my official duties when I was Lord Chancellor. And I owe him, in fact, a very great de de debt of gratitude because um, he always responded to what I asked and always kept my confidences. I think we, um, both of us, um, approached the matter as uh, believing Christians. I, in uh, a very humble way, and of course he as a prince of the Roman Catholic Church. And I think uh, we, we talked on that wavelength. He was a teacher of, I think, moral theology and uh, knew a great deal of the theory of the Roman Catholic Church in relation to legal matters. And therefore we spoke uh, on a level in which both of us were experts in our own subject uh, whenever we did speak uh, on serious concerns. He was, of course, as you know, a person of um, uh, quite humble origin in the Falls Road, and um, neither he nor I pretended to have the same political views, but I think that he um, uh, combined uh, a, a very considerable presence and eminence. He was a big man physically as well as uh, in every other way. Uh, he had combined the dignity and presence that you would expect of a cardinal with uh, um, a sympathy for the common people, which I think was quite unmistakable. I don't think that either of us um, looked upon the other as an advisor. Uh, I think, on the contrary, uh, he had things to ask of me and to find out about from me, and um, I had things to ask of him. And uh, certainly on that first occasion when we met, uh, the great question of the day, which has long since been um, over, overridden by events, but the great question of the day was whether he would help uh, to get um, members of his church to join in uh, the, the police and on what terms, and we spoke very frankly about that. He made me certain promises and he kept his word to the letter. More recollections, this time from Jack Lynch. I first met Cardinal Conway at a function in Ivy House, it was shortly after he was appointed Auxiliary Archbishop of Armagh and before he was elevated to the College of Cardinals. I hadn't known him, and I may say known of him, until that day, except, of course, what I had read about his appointment as an Auxiliary Bishop in the newspapers. But coming into the room in Ivy House, one was immediately conscious of his presence not so much because of his physical stature, but there seemed to be something else. There seemed to be a quiet authority in the man. And later, 
in the same at the same time on the same day I thought that he seemed to be a very shy man so I felt that here was a paradox right away but that paradox seemed to persist right through the rest of his life I met him of course a number of times after the troubles in the north became uh, particularly acute from 1970 onwards and of course his main concern during those days was the violence and the hope that violence could be ended. We met on a number of details and he always appeared to be concerned about almost every detail of events uh, that was happening and every prospect that might help to end uh, these unfortunate uh, events. We had slight differences. Uh, he knew that I felt there was something in the idea of experimental interdenominational education as a means of nipping the uh, evolution of violence in the bud but nevertheless, he was always able to discuss these matters with me objectively and calmly. I felt that he was a man who was a warm friend. And as I said at the beginning, he had this extraordinary mix of authority and diffidence, which I think became the man. And I know that he would be sadly missed, not only by his own co-religists in the north, but all those with whom he worked so unceasingly with for peace. The young William Conway was an avid reader, and he remained one, as Father Jim Lennon recalls. It was always, it was always a sort of, of, of bewilderment to me um, when he got the time to uh, read so much. For instance, you could hear him, you, you would find him uh, talking about Camus. He was a very keen student of Camus. Um, also, perhaps unexpectedly, he was a very keen student of Marcuse, and in 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 relaxed moments, would uh, talk uh, impressively uh, in a, in a, uh, giving a kind of his critique of Marcuse, yeah? uh, and showing an appreciation of Marcuse's insights. This was always a sort of, of, of great surprise to me uh, where he, where, when he did this kind of reading. Some may remember his tribute to Samuel Beckett when he was awarded the Nobel Prize. But again, he had interests nearer home, as the president of Maynooth on Tahrtmasofiech recalls. The Lord Nagaelige Galifag and Cardinal Agus Kanyashasuasakajgaelige Galan Wash. Norvisha and Oganak is Minika Kaheche, Trevshi in the door, Agas Kahiri here on a farsha, Vian Vasegia and Ahad Lorcan and Widdy. Agas Bograh left Stopo Jah Nuliviki Oig, and Snachokadi. Me mehev a nori, Norvi Kelura Kegblian, O Wunner on a farsha, Shuel, who is a rash on the hatcher, Agas Visha Ganas at an Afrin Sakalischa, and La Jedanak than Komaru. Lorshalish and Slow, Agas Noxia and Yach, the Givner, Fadrik Mak and Me and Lashen. Agus and Shin, Norvian Sharman as Publi Hart, Jeshiorum, Eohorch Hartig and Chach and Miosha Stopo, Vian Chan Lano and Maro, Edramane, Ak Vian Yen and the Conis a Chak of Foil, Agus Kurun Farin the Falter River, Noye, 
agus an sin hasbin sa doing an yagan na maka viewer na shomri na aim sir hain agus an karig war as koran dorish er graklesh agus lior lagans orhe agus ay stager nilasagam kaved alta na ngayligeskiv sa rio ak tagum fujara kaplechon na viagiar irishlor we knew it fi megarker chon akuwerer viar irishlor sevlian trokeshacht Era agus an litreacht an tedal vier. Vise karsias on er an doi a jaren an jalvadoir, jalv egen a makas piece of cliche. Agus er an doi hien a gagahian filamor gaelige, kainsh vio na gaeltakta glaco, agus a kaj danta a jaru asci. Nishin dahid blino heno skrivon medchen, agus niroen shano riordain na marchino jirain a skriv sanam. Tarirev ni dolem gor wulchehen agashan le kele dio mar kego vron olskal naheren kema norak eren vertjoku enari eren lache ena ni roshan abalta vehlahir agastan vertjoku imiher lina firinye nish fi space war agastar naheren faste nure kapu na aspa kuntenard waka edusame e vi konier nunjalgener noye agas leche gahro de vila file fi star in kantershen Gahiri ha kijward on the bon inchi, lak meha sulio finds Morrison marhampla fui kago inyel na dokumentin ins na wedding papers agus alehji fi anvas kijo agi ar eonyel gahiri ha odalshi Michelin Walsh literaka jeranaka e inyel ins an Irish sword. Istoyen nak naur narku na gailigori aran cardinal mar yigrishor aksanam kena is shumi. Imacht Gaelige, Gemlina Nuasarosha Parchakon, Kivnium Gahiriher, and Kid Afrin Gaelige, Dark Kreluer, Hellefish Ernadio, Eshnavi Marcelluri, on Orin Vigarman, Sivlian Shaskado Stoilam, and Shin and Vlian Capo in Aspoge, Hogshen Yacht, and Vlian Shin the Common Sagart in a Niraktish, Nokche and Yacht, a Givnier Hemestal Makurte, in Eme, Sivlian Shachto Hain. Agus Norvimis Berch, a Golhig, Imachti Harsile, Givner, Nivne Hair, and Eskalig, Bagna Carfad, Lorimishli Kales, Kevinlum, Urawana Hogmich Kurch, Ervarabor, Ebaras, and Valkomo, Agus Vimit a Lorch Gaelig and Norvishan Sakahir, Agus as in Barborlin, and Anim J, Ake a Lorch Frankish, Kian Changa Shin, Orson Cardinal Shin Changa, Coswell Shin Changa, a view a Lorch Sarank. Soladanic Norwani, Agastok and Barabore, Agastashin Munju, vous êtes préhistorique. The Cardinal had a keen sense of history, but a keen sense of contemporary needs too. He knew the importance of good communications to the Church of his time. Father Agnellis Andrew. My first meeting with him grew out of my work as a broadcaster. We were both young men. He was a professor at Minuth, and I had recently been appointed to take charge of Catholic broadcasting in the BBC. I had done some Lenten talks for Radio Erin, and also, with the boldness of youth, I had dared to do a few broadcasts with the ambitious title A Catholic Social Scientist Looks at the Irish Constitution. Oh, the patient people of Ireland. However, Dr Conway was interested, and even set me right on a point or two. A correspondence began, and soon he invited me to address the Minuth Union on broadcasting. I don't remember anything about the talk, 
but I do remember vividly Dr. Conway's room late that night, sitting there on a low stool by the fireside, listening to some of the best conversation I've ever heard. Dr. McGarry was there, I think, and Dr. Philbin and a few others. Later, I went with him to his home in Belfast to watch a marvellous French television programme on the recently restored Easter Vigil, for which I had done the English commentary. And sadly, I remember him helping us broadcasters working in the snow blizzard at the funeral of his predecessor, Cardinal Dalton. People in positions of high responsibility often find working in the media difficult and indeed full of tensions. But he understood how radio and television enabled the good news of the gospel to reach everyone in the land, and he gave encouragement and help, without, I think, ever really enjoying broadcasting very much himself. Although I must say the impact of some of his later broadcasts was powerful indeed. The last time I was in regular contact with him was during the Second Vatican Council, where, after the strains of the first difficult sessions, he emerged in a very important world figure, gaining the great respect of the fathers of the Church. He made his own unique contribution in difficult times to the noble line of Archbishops of Armagh. It was during the Vatican Council and at a subsequent Synod of Bishops where the Cardinal was one of the three co-presidents that Louis McRedmond got to know him as a journalist. He enjoyed the company of journalists. He liked to pit his knowledge against our cynicism, his total recall of what we'd written against our fumbling efforts to explain what we meant. He thus forced us to think, but he made us feel wanted too. It's all very well for you fellows, he'd sometimes say, at once envying our freedom and making it clear that his world would be the poorer without us. And so it would have been, not because we were dispensers of light, but because we offered a view from another vantage point upon the events which engaged his mind. It wouldn't have been possible, this ongoing and mutually fruitful exchange, without the relaxed and friendly atmosphere he generated around him. The most hardened newsman fell victim to the Cardinal's good humour, and confrontation quickly yielded to reasoned dialogue. Only the rash expected to win the argument. But more often than many realised, a journalist's perception became the point of reference for a later statement from Armagh. We couldn't talk to a cardinal the way you do, an American reporter once told me in awe. And a German added, I wish we had cardinals like that. He was sometimes impatient with the journalist's impatience. Does it matter, he'd ask, if Ireland implements a decision six months after England or Holland. His measure of good journalism was not that it should reflect official attitudes, but that it should be well-informed, calmly expounded, competently written. He found extreme positions suspect. I feel there's a great need, he wrote to me once, for people who'll do their utmost to hold the balance evenly between left and right. It was a pastor's priority, the pursuit of consensus between all God's people. If church affairs in his time were opened out to adult discussion, it was his doing as well as ours. There was an affection between us, warm and vibrant and healthily disputatious. 
We mourn his passing as we would mourn the untimely death of a highly regarded and stimulating colleague. Than that, no journalist's emotion can strike a deeper chord. We leave the final word to one of his priests, Father Dennis Fall. The work of the Cardinal can be summed up in a well-known Irish proverb. Ni he la na gricha, la na scallop. The day of the big wind is not the day for the thatching. The Cardinal always looked to the future and often spoke to us priests in Armagh of the storms that lay ahead and of the opportunities to preach the gospel that lay ahead for Armagh and for Ireland. He did not wait for the storms. He prepared the church to take the strain of nights of big wind, Icha Nagicha Mora. The building of structures in Armagh and for the Irish church was his work. Its full benefits will not be seen for ten, perhaps, or twenty years or more. He was a good thatcher. He wanted his work to protect the house of God and to keep it safe until the end of the century. He never had any use for instant solutions or instant applause. Deeply he dug the foundation, which is Christ, and patiently, piece by piece, he laid on the thatch with the skill of a master craftsman. As a result of these years of hard and unrelenting work, the Church in Ireland and the Church in Armagh can look up to the sky and face the wind and the rain with confidence. The House of God in Ireland and the House of God in Armagh, Chuck Fodrick, will say many times, Thank you for the thatching. Her yes, Jay, Lashon Wajin Wira, Gamawish Gisha Anakth. <laughs>